I asked the question, I don't know how many of you heard it, so have you read the book of Psalms? I mean, really taken your time over some time and read through the book of Psalms. John Calvin said something that's become famous about the book of Psalms. He said that the book of Psalms contain an anatomy of the soul. In other words, if you read through the book of Psalms, it takes you inside the souls of men. It it takes you inside their head. It takes you inside their heart as they, in prayer and in song, express their raw emotions. And it shows you just about everything that can be felt by a human being. I'm yet to find something that I have felt as a human being that I can't find identified in the book of Psalms. It's an amazing book that way. In the same way, the book of Job gives us an anatomy of Job's soul. The book of Job, as we listen to Job chapter after chapter, as we listen to him talk, it takes us inside his heart, it takes us inside his mind, as he graphically expresses raw emotion, his confusion at times, his grief, even his anger. And all of that, understandably, after God had taken so much from Job. God had taken so much from Job, including his seven boys and three girls. At first, Job reacted with impressive strength. You remember when he said in chapter 1, verse 21, after he'd first lost his livelihood and lost his children, he said, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He started with a very faithfully strong reaction. But what do we find as we, as the story continues and as we read the book of Job, over time, with the onset of an excruciating, debilitating disease, Job grows weaker. He grows weaker in body and in soul, and the grief begins to set in, and the confusion begins to set in, and the anger sets in. And on top of all that, if that wasn't already enough, on top of all of that, it felt to Job as if God had taken away one more thing. It felt to Job like God had taken away himself. Job felt abandoned by God. He felt like God was silent, like God was not hearing his cry. C.S. Lewis said after he lost his wife, 
Go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. And that seems to be exactly how Job felt. As he cried out after losing so much. Everything he loves and lives for, from his kids to his God, is gone. How would you feel? What would you say? What would you be thinking? Everything gone. And so we're not surprised when we find Job at the end of chapter 37. Beneath these storm clouds. Sore and exhausted. He is a worn down man. He's looking forward to death. And he is finding it every day increasingly difficult to fear God and turn away from evil. It's actually at the end of chapter 37, it's a big moment in the story. As we've been following and tracking with Job through his loss, that's a big moment at the end of chapter 37 when these storm clouds roll in and Job is beneath them. He's worn down. He's been through so much. He he wants to die. He's wanted to die for a long time. He's nearly lost his faith. The suffering has brought great temptation for him. He wants this to, to be done. His companions have come. They have nothing more to say. Job has uttered his dying words and he at the end of chapter 37 he is like a willow branch that has just been bent and bent and bent and it's difficult to read even at times by the end of 37 chapters this this willow branch has been bent so far that that we're asking ourselves and i'm sure job was asking himself is he gonna snap Is he going to lose his faith? Is he going to shake his fist at God? Is Is he going to take his wife's advice from months before and just get it over with and curse God and die? Or or will he somehow miraculously be rescued? So that's the moment that brings us to chapter 38 at the at the end of chapter 37 what's going to happen to job if, if this is the movie you're watching this is when when everybody stops chewing their popcorn you don't want to miss anything you want to see everything you don't, you, you want to hear everything what will happen next Words from the whirlwind. That's what's next in the story. Words from the whirlwind. 
up until this point, nothing supernatural has happened in the book of Job. And then a voice comes out of storm clouds. It's God, of course, and his words are not what we would expect. We looked at half of his words last week. We surveyed the the first half of God's speech, and we will survey the second half of his words this morning. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for a time on this earth now as your people to read your word. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us understand your word. Fill us with your spirit, God, that we would know your truth. God, we ask that you would give us this morning a vision of you as big as the vision of you that you gave to Job. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't already, would you please turn to Job chapter 40? His speech is sort of neatly divided into four chapters. Again, we looked at chapter 38 and chapter 39 last week. We found this to be true. We'll find it true again today. What God says is surprising and the way he says it is surprising. First of all, the way God speaks to this sore, tired, worn down brother of ours, Job, is surprising. God does not come in quietly and gently like a shepherd and draw alongside Job and say, well done, good and faithful servant. We might expect that that's how God would come to him. If Job was a friend of mine and he had gone through what he had gone through, I would come in gently. I would come in tenderly. I would come quietly into this hospital room. And we're surprised that God does not come in that way. He doesn't come in and say something like that to him. Hey, Job, you have done well. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's not the way God speaks to him. What does God do? He literally storms in and says to Job, brace yourself like a man. So the way he speaks to Job is surprising. And then as he begins to say more and more words, what God speaks is surprising. There's no apology, there's no explanation, there's no acknowledgement, none of that. Only questions. Over 50 questions. Over 50 questions, he asks Job. Questions about the origin of life, questions about the weather, questions about constellations, questions about animals. Basically, questions amounting to this, Job, do you have the knowledge and the ability to create and govern all things? Is that a surprising thing to hear God say? 
After Job has been through what he's been through? So those are the kinds of questions that God asks in chapter 38 and 39. And then God pauses, and then here is Job's first response. And it's in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5. Job said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Okay. So, God's questions have done something to Job. God's questions have made Job feel small. Verse 4. Behold, I am of small account. God's questions have also silenced Job. Verse 4 and 5. I lay my hand on my mouth. I will not answer. God's words have done this to Job. Job has been put in his place, you could say. And at this point, Job doesn't know what to say to God. So he puts his hand over his mouth and says, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to talk. And so God talks some more. God has more to say. So he continues speaking out of the storm. In verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? That sounds different from what God has said so far. This is directed right at Job. Right? God has been talking about goats and constellations and rain and snow and hail. And now he looks at Job and says, will you, Job, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? God only has one bone to pick with Job, and this is it. At the end, we will see that in chapter 42, that that God is actually, he's pleased with Job. Job has said right things about God. Job has ultimately remained faithful throughout this suffering. But this is God's one beef, verse 8. He called Job a a fault finder back in verse 2, and he's explaining it here in verse 8. You have put me in the wrong. Job, you have condemned me that you may be in the right. So in other words, Job has, as he's been suffering, knowing that he's a relatively innocent man, that he hasn't done anything to deserve this severe punishment, in maintaining his innocence, in trying to understand why God would allow these things to happen in his life, He's crossed some lines with God. And he has accused God of wrongdoing. 
Like saying, God, why am I the target of your arrows? Why are you being so cruel to me? Why have you forgotten me? In truth, God was not being cruel to Job. In truth, God had not forgotten about Job. But that's how Job feels. So he's trying to figure out. He's trying to explain his suffering. And he ends up complaining about how God is running his life. Which is something typical that we do if we're suffering. Why are you doing this, God? This doesn't make sense, God. I I don't understand this. I, I haven't earned this. I don't deserve this. What's the implication of all of that? You shouldn't be doing this, God. He's accusing God of wrongdoing. Maybe you're not good. Maybe you're not being just. This does not feel right. So God's challenging him. To maintain your innocence, you're condemning me just because you don't understand this. So God goes on. Have you, Job, an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Now that question gets right to the same point of all the other questions. You're not like me, Job. what God has been communicating to Job by asking him all these questions about the universe to which Job had to answer to every single one of them, I don't know. I don't know. This is, this is beyond me. This is beyond me. I, I, don't, I don't understand this. What's the point God is making? Job, you are not God. You don't have the knowledge, the judgment, the power to create and govern the world. So how can you complain about how I am governing the world? That's God's rebuke. That's his point. That's what this question is getting at. So God says to Job, Jeff read it. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So do you hear what God is saying? God is saying, okay, Job, do that, verses 10 through 13, do that. Adorn yourself with majesty, dignity, pour out the overflowings of your anger. Take those who are proud and wicked and sinful. Be the perfect judge. Execute perfect judgment. Do that, Job, and I will acknowledge to you that you can save yourself. In other words, I will acknowledge to you that you've got this covered. You've got this handled. You indeed do have another way, a better way. But what's the implication? But if you can't do that, Job, then I'm not going to acknowledge to you 
that you have a better way to do things. That you can save yourself. This is very basic. God's point is that Job is, is out of his league. Job, you are way, 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 way out of your league when you begin to question and complain about and critique the ways of God. Have you ever questioned the ways of God? Have you ever complained about the ways of God or critiqued the ways of God? Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It is the height of presumption to question and critique the ways of God. But we're going to wrestle with this. Because I think many of us struggle with this. I think we do question the ways of God. I think we do critique the ways of God. Maybe we wouldn't want to say it, but many of us do complain about the ways of God. I met with a man just recently who acknowledged it was clear to him. He knew the word was clear that God governed everything, that God was sovereign, that God was in control of the world. And he said to me, but isn't it obvious that he's not doing a good job? I mean, things aren't going well, and there's this, and there's that, and there's evil, and there's wickedness, and there's tragedy, and, and, and there's innocent suffering. And so that's... That's the critique. It is the height of presumption to question and critique the ways of God. But I think a lot of us struggle with that. And some of the answers that we find God saying and we find the word of God saying, at least some of us, we bristle against those responses. It feels like God is just sort of being a bully, maybe. And God's just saying, listen, I'm God. Shut up. This is not your job. Don't. Don't question me. Don't complain about this. Don't critique about this. My hot thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There's, there's no way you can get a handle on this, so you just got to trust me. Is he asking for blind trust? Is he asking for blind faith? Is that really loving? Is that really kind? These are the kinds of things that people, Christians, not Christians, struggle with. When they watch God deal with people like he's dealing with Job. But there's no way around it. God is clearly saying to Job, Job, you are out of your league. The gap, the gap between man and God is great. And yet we question his running of the universe. Think of something. I think many of us do that. Sometimes it's just adopting theologies that aren't biblical, but they make more sense to us. But you don't realize you're doing it. 
Sometimes it's adopting theologies that are not biblical and are not true, but they're much more comfortable. That's doing that. It's complaining about the way God has said that it is and inventing other ways that it must be to fit with what you and I might want or prefer. And it's so presumptuous. So think about something that you have very little knowledge of. Because we seem to think often that we have a lot of knowledge about how universes should be run. Think about something you have very little knowledge of. That's easy for me. There are so many things I have very little knowledge of. Okay, so this is what Job is doing is like me helping Steph Curry with his jump shot. That's what this is. This is like me giving Bryce Harper tips at batting practice. This is giving Martha Stewart cooking advice. This is young couples with no children giving parenting advice. It's not a pet peeve of mine. You know what I'm talking about. This is telling Robert Lindsay how to paint. This is telling Steven Spielberg how to direct movies. Donald Trump how to invest money. Jeff Gordon how to drive a car. C.S. Lewis how to write a book. Those are ridiculous things to do. I hope none of you would do any of those things. But when we sit around and contemplate and question and critique and not just accept the ways of God, that's what we're doing. And what God is making clear is that that's unacceptable. That's not okay. This is what Job had done. It's what we do when we question and critique God's governance of the universe. So God continues. Next stop. Dinosaurs. I'm telling you. I think they're dinosaurs anyway. Maybe not. Chapter 40 and 41. Behemoth and Leviathan are the names that God gives them. Those names basically mean great beasts. Behemoth is a, a land creature. Leviathan is a sea creature. Historically, there have been several interpretations of what these creatures are. Maybe they're dinosaurs. Maybe they're demonic creatures. Maybe they're actually the most widely believed as they are the hippopotamus and the crocodile. It depends on lots of factors like how literally you read these texts. Uh, when Job was alive and whether or not these creatures were alive at the time Job was alive. So let's hear what God says about each of them. Behemoth and Leviathan. And then our bigger task, try and discern why does God spend so much time talking about them? Why does he do this? So number one, behemoth. Let's start with behemoth. Chapter 40, verse 15. It's funny. I got more 
emails this week prior to this sermon than I ever have received about an upcoming sermon. I don't know what that means. I usually don't get any emails leading up to a sermon. And this week I got like three to four emails leading up to this sermon. So apparently many of you are very excited (laughs) about Behemoth and Leviathan. So I hope I don't disappoint. Verse 15, Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus tree covers him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by the eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Brontosaurus, maybe? Hippopotamus? Here's the point. He's big, strong, fearless, frightening animal, and God made him. That's the point. Number two, Leviathan. What about chapter 41? What about Leviathan? Verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a, a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? So here God goes. He's asking Job a lot of questions again. He's asking him questions, this time about Leviathan, and his questions amount to whether or not Job can control Leviathan. Are you able to control this creature? So again... Like the questions in chapter 39, God is challenging the knowledge of Job, the wisdom of Job, the power of Job. Same thing. He goes on in verse 4. Will, he's talking about Leviathan, this big sea creature. Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? You hear what God is saying? Men fear Leviathan, but they don't fear me. Which is absurd. Because why? Because God plays with Leviathan like a bird. So why would you fear this big sea creature and not fear God. It's absurd to God. It should be absurd to us. Leviathan, what else does God say? Leviathan speaks softly to God. And then God puts him on a leash and he curls up at little girl's feet. And God says, and you don't fear me. You question me. You critique me. You complain about me. Leviathan serves God. He pleads to God, and yet men fear him over God. 
Look at verse 18. Here he sounds like a fire-breathing dragon, which I would love to believe is true. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Seems pretty clear. When he raises himself up, verse 25, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like. A creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. That's Leviathan. Fire-breathing dragon, maybe. Pliosaur, maybe. Crocodile. Again, here is the point. He's big. He's strong. He's fearless. He's frightening. And God owns him. That's the point. So that's behemoth and Leviathan. But here's our bigger challenge. Are you thinking about this? I mean, here's our bigger challenge. Why does God talk about them so much? Are you serious, God? Why did you just go Jurassic Park on Job? It's weird, isn't it? I mean, come join me in that. That's a little weird. Job has been suffering. He's been asking God why. Just think about what's happening up till God speaks. Job has been suffering immensely. He's been asking God, why has this been happening to me? He has charged God with injustice. And God takes him to the zoo. Leviathan gets 34 verses. It's the entire chapter of 41. 28% of God's total words in this whole speech are about Leviathan. In other words, in God's response to Job, he says more about Leviathan than he says about anything else. Listen, if you did this in a counseling room, like if you and I were in a counseling room and we were counseling someone together, and they just poured out their heart and expressed all the ways that they had suffered, and you looked at them and said, have you considered Bigfoot? I would ask you to leave forever. But I mean, 
Right? Isn't, isn't that what, what a response from God? And then he's done. Mike dropped. He's done. So put it all together. He asks Job questions about the origin of life and the weather and the stars and the animals and, and then a rebuke and then a couple dinosaurs and he's done. He's out. What a response from God. So what, what are we to make of this? So let's take three steps together. Step number one. Step number one. What, what has God done here? And what, we just talked about what he's done on the surface. But what has he really done? God has given Job a vision of God. God has revealed himself. You understand that. When he's talking about Leviathan, and then God says, and and I own him, it's not how great Leviathan is. It's how great God is. God reveals himself in, in ways that Job has not had God revealed to him. God has confronted Job with himself, with, with God. God has made much of God. So God gets up and for four chapters talks about God, ultimately. He makes much of himself. God reveals to Job his knowledge and power. God has reminded Job of his exhaustive sovereignty. Again, God has given Job a vision of God. Everything, this is God's point, everything is under God. Everything. So he ends his words with a description of two of the most apparently powerful and terrible things in the world. That's how he ends. With a description of these two frightening, fearless, terrible things. And then reminds Job that even they belong to God and are under his control. So he's giving Job a vision of God. In chapter 42, verse 11, he said, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So he's saying mine over and over again. Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the entire universe over which Jesus does not say mine. And that's what God is saying. Mine, mine, mine. This is how God talks to Job. These animals are mine. These stars are mine. This weather is mine. Behemoth is mine. Leviathan is mine. You are mine. It's all under me. I control every molecule. I've got, like we teach the kids to sing, I've got the whole world 
in my hands. From Leviathan to the little tiny baby. So he's giving Job a vision of God. He is saying to Job, look at me. Look at me. God does this all over the place, doesn't he? Look at me. Look at my power. Look at my knowledge. Look at my wisdom. Isn't that what God is saying? Do you see how great I am? Do you see how much knowledge I have? Do you see the extent of my wisdom? Do you see my power? Do you see my ability? Everything. Everything in the universe. It belongs to me. I created all of it. I rule over all of it. I govern all of it. Job, Job, look at me. That's what God is doing. Let's take another step, step number two. Was Job helped by that? I mean, he wants answers, he gets no answers. Job wants an explanation, he gets no explanation. Not even an acknowledgement of his suffering. I mean, isn't God just bullying Job at this point? Isn't he just bullying him? I mean, is that how you talk to someone who's been through what Job has been through? You don't offer any explanation, no apology, no acknowledgement of the hurt that they've been through? I mean, that's what I would do. That's what I hope you would do. God doesn't do that. He just talks about how great he is. That's not going to work. He's just discouraging him more. You can't talk like that to people. We get it, God. You are great. I get it. You made behemoth. You made Leviathan. You know where all the stars are. You know what the weather's going to do next. I, I get it. You are great, God. So that next step, is that going to even help Job? Let's just cheat and peek ahead at chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Listen to Job's response. We'll look at more of this next week. But here's what I want to know. Is Job going to be helped by this talk from God? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Verse 6. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That may sound like a low point to you. That's his high point. This is Job's highest point. To answer the question, was Job helped? The answer is yes. Wow. Job was helped. It worked, we might say. It actually worked. Job was at the same time rebuked and helped. Right? He was rebuked in that. That was part of this, right? You have an arm like me, adorn yourself. Can you do this? You've put me in the wrong. You've condemned me so that you can be right. That's part of this. Don't you know who I am? This is not right what you've done. I am great. I am great. You have no right to criticize me. or to. There was a rebuke. That's part of God's response. But God's response also is not just rebuking Job. He is coming to Job who has suffered so greatly and he is helping Job. He's getting Job out of this. He is rescuing Job. He is delivering Job. Job is, and we'll look more at this, but he is at the same time delighted and ashamed which is what the Christian is. Ashamed before God, but delighted before God. Convicted of sin before God. Fearful of God. Enjoying God. Delighting in God. Because He's God, but He loves me. Because He is the just judge, but He's merciful. Both and. But Job realizes his smallness before God. He is ashamed. He is repentant. But he is delighting in God. He says, I had heard about you. Right? I sort of, sort of, in his, I sort of knew you. But now I know you. My, now my eyes see you, he said. And what had God been doing for four chapters? Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And what is Job's response? I see you. These things were too wonderful for me. I did not understand them, but now my eyes see you. Here's the great thing. When Job's talking like this, he's still sick. He's still poor. His children are still dead. And God is enough. And God is enough. And God is the gospel. God is the good news. God is the treasure. God is the prize. God gives Job exactly what Job needs himself. Already starting to answer step three. But let's go to step three. So we know what God has done. God has given Job a vision of himself. And we know, step two, that Job, yes, he was helped by this. Now, step three. So what is it about what God said that helped Job? 
I mean, you would never do that with somebody. I'd never do that in a counseling appointment. You're discouraged and down in the dumps, and I just, just think about me. Just think about me, would you? Problems will go away. <laughs> Let me tell you about all my accomplishments, my achievements, and really just how great I am. Let me send you home with a picture. You remember me by. We wouldn't do that. But this is what God does, and it's very successful. What is it about what God said that satisfied Job, or how was Job helped by this, or why was Job helped by this? I, w- I want you to really think about this. God comes in and makes much of himself, and it helps Job out of his suffering. God doesn't explain his suffering. He doesn't acknowledge his suffering. He doesn't say he's sorry about the suffering. He does none of that. He just talks about how great he is. And our brother Job is exactly what he needs. He's helped by this. Why? Well, it's the same reason that you may be helped by this. He's given Job a vision of God. Job is brought back to God. Job and his circumstances had grown too big. It's understandable. It is understandable when you read about what Job went through. But his circumstances, his problems, his his trouble had grown too big. And God was eclipsed. This is what suffering always threatens to do. It obscures God, obscures the love of God, obscures the rightness of God, obscures the sovereignty of God, obscures the goodness and mercy of God. This is what suffering, it, it hides it. It hides it. That's what happened with Job. His circumstances had grown too big. God had grown too small. The glory of God was eclipsed. And he needed his focus to be reset. Have you ever been with someone who had a, an injury? Or maybe you've uh, been around someone when they were injured. Maybe it was a severe injury. And have you seen how people who know how to handle that respond to the person? I'm asking because we had a situation yesterday and had to take one of our kids down to the emergency room. Everything's fine. It's our, like, fourth visit this year. I asked her if we'd get a punch card on the way out. You know, like the fifth one's free or something. But we went in, and uh, my sweet, our sweet little daughter had, had cut her finger pretty bad. It was bad enough to go down to the, to the emergency room. And so we, we go back, and she's, she's having such a hard time. It was so, so painful, so painful. And the doctor comes in. He was, he was, he was wonderful with her, very, very skilled doctor. But he, he sat down, and, and for a moment, he was stern with her. He was stern, with, and I didn't like that at first. Like, hey, what are, what are you doing? Well, he was stern with her, right? He said, Avery, 
Avery. He said, I want you to look at me. Look at me. She did. And he had some things that he needed to tell her. And he began to help her calm down. But when she was feeling that pain, I mean, that was all she could think about. You barely knew who was around her. Nothing else is happening. You're consumed by that, right? You know, emotional pain is is even worse. It could be even more severe. And it threatens to completely and totally consume you. And all the focus gets put on that. It gets too big. And so he, this doctor, an expert at what he does, right, knew what was best for my daughter, Was he being unkind to her when he was being stern to her? Absolutely not. Was he loving her when he was being stern to her? Absolutely. And she was helped by him saying, Hey, listen, you can get your focus and attention off of this. There's something more important right now. There's something we need to talk about. This is what God does with Job. They're grabbing him by the face. Look at me. Look at me. I know this this has gotten way too big. Look at me. I'm so much bigger than this. So Job needed to see God. That's what he needed. He did not need his suffering explained. And it never will be explained. Maybe in heaven he finds out. I don't know. It was never explained to him. Never acknowledged. His questions will never be answered. God never answers them. It's actually not what he needs. He needed God. He needed to see God. He needed to know God. And so do you. So do you. You need to know God. If you haven't come to know God, you, you need to come to know God. We pray for you. Pray that God would reveal himself to you. Job did not find God. God found Job. Job didn't pluck God out of the sky. God sent his voice out of the cloud. We pray for you, that God would reveal himself to you so that you would know God. Some of you who know God and you're suffering or you will suffer, you'll have to fight for this. I hope you'll have friends, people who love God, who will help you keep your vision of God right. Keep your eyes on him and your focus on him. Because that's ultimately what you need. You need to trust God. And this is why you can trust God. Why should you trust God? Why, why do I trust God? Do you, are you under the impression that I trust God because it all makes sense? Are you under the impression that I trust God because I've been able to reconcile all of it? 
I trust God because he's God. And you must trust God because he's God. He's got Leviathan on a leash. He sets the stars exactly where he wants them. He rules over all the planets, not just this one. He knows what the goats are doing this morning. And he plotted out their day for them. He, he's ordained every movement of these wasps outside my office today. He's got big plans for them today. He's told the flowers what to do this spring. When to come up and what color to be and where to face and when to present themselves to you. That's why you trust God. That's why we love God. That's why we enjoy God. Let me close with a quote from this man, William Henry Green, that I've been more helped by anybody throughout our study of the book of Job. We only have two more sermons left. So he has a, some things he writes about this chapter we just studied, and I'll just close with this. The same thing appears from the effect which the Lord's discourse produces upon Job. It gives Job a new and more distinct apprehension of God, a more vivid and powerful impression of his glorious nature. It was not the perception of one attribute isolated from the rest or exalted above the rest, which led him to exclaim, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. All his previous conceptions of God were faint and distant compared with the intimate and thorough conviction of his exalted being which now possessed his soul. It was as that which is learned by distant report compared with that which stands revealed with the clearness and evidence of eyesight. This points to no partial, imperfect, one-sided view of God in which certain attributes are made prominent at the expense of others and some are hidden altogether, but to a complete and true perception of God in his real character. His impatient utterances under the pressure of his afflictions were due to a defective apprehension of the glorious character of God. Now that he sees God as he truly is, he is abashed and confounded that he ever could have spoken as he did or indulged such feelings as he then had. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the truth that we've thought about in your word today. God, we know that there are a lot of things today and this week that are going to tempt us to forget you. And we're ashamed of that. 
But we know that we will lose sight of you, and we're ashamed of that. So we're thankful for the worship of you. We're thank you for these songs. We're thankful for these prayers. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your people to help us remember you, God, to keep you in focus. God, would you convict us of our sin and help us today in all that we do to do it all for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.